0: Hi there, this is Edwin Crozier from the Franklin Church of Christ, and I want to thank you for joining us and listening to this lesson that is designed to help us glorify and honor God in His churches and as individual Christians. 2006 has been pegged by the Franklin Church of Christ as a turning point year as we embrace and further our responsibility to impact the world for God's glory. In our minds, there was no more natural place to begin than by taking a look at the seven letters to the churches of Asia found in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Those churches were in a cultural battle. Some were impacting the world, but most were being impacted by the world. What a great place for us to begin to learn Christ's counsel for His churches, to learn how to be world impactors, to get out and glorify Him drawing people into his family. The lesson you're about to hear was a lesson of introduction, looking at those churches as a whole as we took some time throughout 2006 to examine Christ's counsel to those churches. So open your Bible and let's learn how to take a look at those seven letters to the seven churches of Asia and learn from Christ's counsel to his churches. If I were to ask you what you thought was the number one thing that affects the church and impacts it negatively, what would you think? We could probably go through the auditorium and we find several different answers. We, um, based on what we've seen and where we've been, we probably all look at various different aspects of things that affect the church. If I were to answer that question, I think if, if I were to take a look at what impacts Christ church as a whole and local congregations and even individual Christians the most, I think I'd just have to say, it's the world. The world is impacting Christ's church. The world is constantly beckoning to Christ's church, trying to find some type of common ground, trying to find some type of, of walk that they can have together, that they can be just more like one another. The world is constantly trying to change Christ's church and change Christ's people. We looked in the book of Revelation... And in Revelation, we find these letters to seven churches, each of which were involved in a cultural battle, a battle against the world. The world was trying to pull them one direction or the other. And Christ looks at these churches and He counsels them because each of these seven churches have acted in a different way, reacted in a different way based upon the world's pull. And He counsels them and tells them how they, instead of being impacted by the world, need to impact the world. Our goal this year is to be, as Mark prayed just moments ago, to be far more evangelistic than we've been. To turn the corner on that and get out into our community and recognize that, that our number one goal is not to get all the folks who've moved into the area that are already Christians to attend here, but to get out the folks that are lost and help them to become Christians, to be children of God to be a part of this family and be a part of God's family. What that means is we've got to impact the world. If you read last week's bulletin, you'll know that I had said that tonight's lesson was going to be about the letter to the church at Ephesus here. But as I studied more and more this week, I realized that perhaps we needed to back up and have a little bit of an introduction to these letters and these churches that we find here. So tonight we're going to be taking a look at these, these letters as a whole and what happened with these seven churches. And throughout the rest of the year, it's not going to be every Sunday night, If you're like me, when the preacher says, oh, yes, we're going to have a series on the seven churches of age, you think, oh, man, I'm going to go visit someplace else next week. We're not doing that every Sunday night. It's not going to happen like that. But we are, throughout this year, we're going to take a look at these churches. Because where we mirror their approach to the world and their cultural battle, we need to heed the counsel that Jesus offered them. And so that's why we're going to be taking a look at that. Tonight, let's just back up. And take a look at Christ's counsel overall. Just some introductory thoughts that we need to have in mind as we take a look at these seven churches. The very first thing that we need to recognize is the context of these churches. I think far too often we've looked at these uh, chapters 2 and chapter 3 in the book of Revelation and we pull them right out of the book. And it's very natural to do that because if there's any part of the book that we think we really understand, it's these two chapters. The rest of the book, we struggle with, we argue over, we'll point out, well, I think it's this now that I'm not sure, but boy, chapters 2 and 3, we think we've got those down. Those seem to be a lot easier to study, and that makes it just very easy for us just to pull those two chapters and the letters to those seven churches right out of their context and not realize that they're in this book for a reason. Why didn't, why didn't Christ just have this as a separate book? Why didn't he just put these seven letters in a separate book? Why didn't he make seven separate books? I mean, a lot of the other books in the New Testament are letters to the churches. Why are these letters found in this book? We have to keep them in their context. We have to realize that these churches are embattled churches. They're in a fight. And the context of Revelation demonstrates that. Despite all the arguing that goes on, and we've got a class in the back right now that's really taking a look, and one of the number one issues we're looking at regarding millennialism is the fact that there are so many different opinions about the book of Revelation and all its intricate details. But very interestingly, I think no matter who you talk to, no matter what position they have on Christ's kingdom, no matter what position they have on the rapture, the tribulation, if you ask them, give me one sentence that defines what the book of Revelation is about, I think just about everybody will say, oh, the book of Revelation is about God wins. There's a battle, and God wins, and we need to be on His side. Everybody recognizes that. These letters to these churches were written within that context. They were a part of that battle. They were the ones in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 11, Jesus said to John, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. These were the churches that were actually receiving this book directly because they were the ones that were embattled. There in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9, John says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The members of these churches were partakers in Christ's kingdom. They were enduring a tribulation and they needed to be taught to persevere. And so Jesus was having John write this entire book to them and he began it with these letters to each of the churches. Why? Because each of the churches were facing this battle against the devil, against the beast, or ungodly government, and against the false prophet, ungodly false religion. That's what they were facing. And each one of them responded differently. Therefore, Jesus counseled each one of them where they are. And as we read these letters, we need to read them within that context. This is Jesus. Jesus counseling His churches regarding how they should face their culture and how they should deal with the battle that they're facing. And where we find that we are facing that same battle, we've got to take a look at their approaches. And if we're like the ones that are falling short, we've got to back up and heed the counsel that He gave them. So we need to recognize the context of these churches, embattled churches. The second thing that we need to recognize is the Christ who is counseling here. If you look back in Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 12, "...then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash." His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held two, seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. And the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. There's no doubt when we consider verse 18 that this is Jesus who is talking. The living One. The One who is dead but now is alive forevermore. This is Jesus the Christ who died for our sins and was resurrected, giving us the hope of resurrection and is alive forevermore. Never to taste the death again. This is Jesus who is counseling here. And as we look at this picture, we recognize various aspects of this picture. For instance, the eyes like flaming fire and the the sharp two-edged sword coming out of His mouth remind us of Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. In the book of Hebrews chapter 4, beginning at verse 12, the Scripture there says, "...for the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do." The eyes of Jesus are like that flaming fire that burn away any deception that we might try to present to Him. We might, like Sardis, try to live based upon the reputation before men. But Jesus sees past all that. His gaze burns through the deceptions that we might present to Him. And His Word, the Word of His mouth, sharper than a two-edged sword, dividing soul and spirit, getting to the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, cuts to the quick. Jesus doesn't mince words. He doesn't beat around the bush. He cuts right to the heart of the matter. Right to where our heart is on the matter. Not just about our actions, but our thoughts and our intentions and our motivations. The description says that His Word was like the sound of many waters. His voice like the sound of many waters. Psalm 93 and verse 4. I know oftentimes when I've read that, and I hear, oh, like many waters... I think about when I've been off camping and I've seen streams and I just think about a lot of streams and and I have the idea that it's kind of this idea of just all this melodious, wonderful trickling of the water. But listen to Psalm 93, verses 3 and 4. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves. More than the sounds of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. The concept here is not just this, this idea of, oh, this wonderful, melodious thing. It's this idea of power. It's like being on the seashore with the waves just crashing all around you as they, as they rise up and they slam against the surf. It's just an amazing and immense sound. He says that is how powerful the Word of Christ is, our Counselor. As we talk about uh, the white hair and the white head and the face shining brightly as the sun, what we realize is a picture of purity and holiness, of light that is so bright that we can't even gaze into His face because of how immensely holy and pure and shining it is. It's just like if we gazed at the sun. How long can we look at the sun? And you look at the sun for five or six minutes and you're going to go blind. And that's the idea. that is how, how amazingly holy and pure Jesus is. It's such that, that we, well, we can't even look upon Him. That is our counselor. But one of the most important things that we find here, one of the most important things, the stars in His right hand and the lampstands that He walks among. He says those lampstands are the churches. And those stars are the angels of the church. And... Depending on which commentary you read, you're going to get a def- different definition for that angel of the church. Some would suggest that it is specifically an angel that is assigned to each congregation. There are others who would say that it's actually the messenger, whether elders or evangelists or, or maybe the one who is just reading the book to the, to the congregation. There are others who would suggest that really the angels of the church is just another figurative representation of the church itself. Whatever the case may be, when we look at this one who is holding the angels of the churches in his right hand and is walking among the lampstands, the churches themselves, the point is, is that even though Jesus has been resurrected and ascended to his throne at the right hand of the Father in heaven, he is not far away from us. He is among us. And he knows. If there is any important point that we need to recognize from the Christ who counsels is that he knows. Every single one of the letters, after Jesus introduces Himself and some aspect of His character, He says, Revelation 2-2, I know your deeds and your toil. Verse 9 of Revelation 2, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Verse 13, I know where you dwell. Verse 19, I know your deeds. Chapter 3 and verse 1, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you're dead. Verse 8, I know your deeds. Chapter 3 and verse 15, again to Laodicea, I know your deeds. The one who counsels, He knows. We may hide things from one another. And we may hide things from other congregations such that we can have a wonderful reputation, but we can't hide anything from this Christ who counsels us. His gaze pierces through. And He knows our deeds. And He knows our hearts. And He knows what we need. And He has the keys to death and Hades. He has the right to counsel us by virtue of who He is. And we ought to listen to Him because of what He provides. That is the Christ who is writing these letters. As He teaches us how we ought to act. And how the congregation ought to fight this cultural war of which we are a part. The other thing that I think we ought to take note of from these seven letters to the churches of Asia. You know, interestingly, we live in a day and age where folks want to say that everybody is all right. If you were to stand up and say that somebody is wrong about something, especially if you were to stand up and say that an entire congregation is wrong about something, you would be castigated as arrogant, as mean, and as unloving. It's gone so far. I mean, And this is a cultural thing. This is a cultural thing. I've heard from some in schools, we've talked about our Bible class curriculum and the various things that we're trying to do. Somebody pointed out that they've heard some in schools where if somebody were to answer the question 2 plus 2 equals 5, the teacher would respond, well, you're right, in a different way. We just want everybody to be right. And that just, we just can't have that. The fact is that there is a message that we learn from these seven churches. It's the fact that sometimes churches are just wrong. As we take a look at these churches here that Jesus wrote to them, despite their great beginnings, at least five of them got to a point where Jesus had to say, you're wrong. Five of them, He said to them, repent and change. There were things that they weren't doing right. They were wrong. And we have to come to grips with the fact that, well, that might be us. What if we're wrong? Granted, this this may seem like such an obvious point. You're wondering, why on earth is this just a whole point in a sermon? And I'm not going to spend all night long on it, justifying making it a whole point. But we just have to recognize, sometimes churches are wrong. And if we read these letters, and we find that the counsel that's offered to Ephesus, or Laodicea, or to one of the others that he said to repent, and we find that their approach to this cultural battle is exactly the approach that we have been taking, what should we do about it? A church that finds that it is wrong, what should they do? Well, that's lesson number four. Well, if we're wrong, just change. If we're wrong, we need to repent, and we need to change, and we need to do what Jesus said. Here in these seven letters, we'll find that five times He pointed that out, that they needed to repent. In verse in chapter 2 and verse 5, Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. If we find that we're like Ephesus, that's the approach that we need to take. And to Pergamum. In verse 14, But I have a few things against you, because you have there there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent! Or else I'm coming to you quickly. To Thyatira, In verse 20 he said, But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I'll throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. We might find that there are some within the congregation that we have to get them to repent. And the rest of us who have not committed the sins along with them have to hold fast to what we have been given, as it says in verse 24. Writing to Sardis, chapter 3 and verse 3, So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you'll not know at what hour I will come to you. Verse 2, it said, Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. of course, with Laodicean, With Laodicea, he says to them in chapter 3 and verse 18, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may become rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I said, anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. If we find that we're like Laodicea, we need to change and turn to God for our strength, both spiritual, physical, We need to gain that spiritual strength from Him. But if we find in any case, and I'm not saying that we're going to do that. I haven't written all these sermons and said, Oh, oh, this is exactly where we are at Franklin. Boy, we've got to hear all these things. That's not what I've done. In fact, I haven't even written any of these sermons. But if, if we do read these, and we do study them, and we find that, wow, that's exactly where we are, and we're the ones that are wrong instead of spending all our time trying to find out where we can point to other churches about what they need to change, what these seven letters counsel us to do is change and follow the counsel of Christ. And the final thing we recognize from these seven letters is there's a really good reason for us to do that. And that is that rewards await those who follow the counsel of Christ. This is the one who has the keys to death and Hades. This is the one who has established the rewards. And with each of these letters, he says to them, to the one who overcomes, this is what you get. For the ones who continue doing what is right and they overcome, enduring, persevering, here's the reward. For those who have stopped doing what is right, but change and repent and get back to my will and overcome, this is the reward. Chapter 2, verse 7, To him who overcomes, I'll grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Anybody want that? Verse 11, He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. From Revelation 20, we know that's the lake of fire. Do we want that? Verse 17, To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I'll give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. I believe that's a picture of the idea of spiritual sustenance and strength and permanence. Verse 26, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my Father and I will give him the morning star. We'll rule with Christ. Verse 5 of chapter 3, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Jesus will confess us Matthew 10 talked about that. Our names will be in that book of life and He'll give us those pure white garments washing our sins away. Chapter 3 and verse 12. He who overcomes, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he'll not go out from it anymore and I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. And finally, verse 21. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. Rewards await the churches that heed the counsel of Christ. We are in a cultural battle. It may not be as treacherous as the ones these early churches were facing yet, but nevertheless, we are in a cultural battle. We are facing the pull of the world. We are facing the temptations of the devil. We are facing... The pull of an ungodly government and false religion. These seven churches were facing all those same things. Some of them approached it correctly and some of them didn't. And I'll tell you what I think we're going to find as we study through these seven churches. What we're going to find is that as we look across the churches in general in our nation, we could probably say each of them is going to take one of these seven approaches and perhaps a mixture of some of them. But Christ's counsel is going to be complete. And somewhere along the line, we're going to get hit by something. And we need to be prepared to respond appropriately and make sure that we are the ones impacting the world and not allowing the world to impact us. As we listen to Christ counsel His churches. I certainly hope this lesson has been beneficial for you and prepared the way to study each of those churches individually. Let's remember what we learned as an introduction to those seven letters. First, we have to keep them in context. These are embattled churches. Second, we need to keep in mind the Christ who counsels. He is the Holy Christ, the all-knowing and all-seeing Christ whom we cannot deceive. He knows and He has the keys to death and hatings. We need to listen to Him. Thirdly, we need to remember that churches can be wrong. Fourth, if we're wrong, then we need to change. And fifth, we need to remember that rewards await us when we follow the counsel of Christ. If you have any questions about the book of Revelation, about these letters to these seven churches, or about what we're doing at the Franklin Church of Christ to impact the world for God's glory, please feel free to call us at 615-794-2359. Or you may contact us through our website, www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. Perhaps somebody gave you this lesson on tape or on CD. If that's the case, may I invite you to go to that website I just mentioned, franklinchurchofchrist.com. We have numerous lessons on numerous topics that you're free to download, both in audio and outline format. You're free to use these in whatever way you feel will glorify God and draw people to Him. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. More importantly, may you richly bless God.